This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. How are we doing today? Oh man, the other week was amazing. Two weeks ago, apparently we only get good feedback when it's like staged or something. You know, it's fine, it's fine, it's whatever. So I started a car project um, yesterday. My car is leaking oil. She's, um, she's old, but she's been reliable. Um, she's, a, she's an 06 Honda Pilot. She's older than all my kids, um, which is wild to think about. Um, 210,000 miles, and we're trying to ride this bad, bad boy out as long as we can. But, uh, so I started this oil leak repair. Um, YouTube is amazing. Right, like you can do everything on, on YouTube. So if anyone goes down, like I really do believe I could pull up on YouTube, like how to perform surgery right now, and we'd be okay. Um, but but this project was bigger than I was expecting. Um, I, I'm I'm changing the uh, oil, no no, the valve gasket cover, and like I had to remove the engine manifold. I don't even know what that is, but it is removed. Um, I don't know how to get it back exactly. I'm hoping I can just work my way backwards and the car will start. Um, but it, it, it turned into a, uh, hey, babe, this is going to take two days type project. Uh, and so we're, we're without a car. But Charlie asked me, did you wear your Firestone shirt when you were working on it? I was like, no, I didn't. But it's a two-day job, so I'll wear it today. Thus, my Firestone shirt. I did work at Firestone. Um, it was a job. In, it, there was a year out of college where I was waiting for Stephanie, my fiance at the time, to finish college so we could then get married and, and moved to Fort Worth. Uh, and so I had these random jobs. My first job was at Hertz rental car. <sighs> that one was tough. <laughs> that one was tough, you know. And so I have that job. Um, and and I, we would take our cars to Firestone to get the oil changed. And I was chatting with the people and they were talking about job opportunities. And they're like, yeah, you know, you make like $20 an hour or something, which for me was a pay upgrade, like huge pay raise from my Hertz rental car job. And so I was like, $20 an hour, sweet, okay. And I get to learn how to fix my own car so I don't have to bring it into you later. Um, and so I, I take the job at, at Firestone. Um, so this is a legit shirt. It's, it's a good 15 years old at this point, so it's vintage. Um, Stephanie hates it when I wear it. I don't know why, it's a pretty rad shirt. Um, so I, I'm working at Firestone, but the thing is, they didn't tell me when I was interviewing that you only make $20 an hour after you've gotten this certification and that certification and that certification, and really only when you're working on these specific jobs that you can't work on until you have this certification and that certification and that certification. Needless to say, I never sniffed close to $20 an hour, and it was hard work, which is why I got fired. Um, and then it's... <laughs> No, I did get fired. It's the only job I've been fired from. Um, I, I, I didn't tighten an oil plug tight enough, and then all the oil exited the vehicle, and that's not good for a car. So if you're like, do I need oil in my car? Yes, you do. Um, and that was like a one strike you're out type thing, so I got fired from that. It's, it's fine, it's whatever. I walked away with a shirt. Um, <laughs> but it was just one of those things where it's like, I, like they, they told me this is how it would be, and I was like, sweet. This was reality, right? It was a, I was, I was sold a, I mean, it was that wordsmithing, right? Like I was misled to think it would be one thing and in reality it was totally a different thing. And that, that stung a bit, right? Like that, that, that stung so much, I literally called the worst job on the planet that I hated. I mean, I, I dreaded Sundays because Monday was coming and I'd have to go back to Hertz rental car. I called them back up and I was like, hey, can I come back? That's how, that's how frustrating that job was. Have, have you ever had anything like that? Maybe it's a job, right, where you're like, you're told this is what the job's going to be, and then you get there, and they're like, 
No, that's not it at all, right? Like the, the bonus structure is not at all what you kind of thought it was, like the work hours, the shifts, the responsibilities. They're like, oh, we showed you page one. Here's pages two through 11, you know? And it's just not at all what you thought it was gonna be. Anyone else ever had a job like that? Maybe it was a, a relationship. You go on a date and you're like, oh, this person's fantastic. Kind of get into that a little bit and you're like, whoop, exit out of here real quick. This is hostile. This is not good. Well, I see, I see some looking down going on right now. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Where you're like, this was not what I thought it was at all. Uh, maybe you go to an all-inclusive adult resort, you know, to get away for your anniversary trip, only to find out the all-inclusive adult resort is this wing of the rooms. This wing over here of the rooms, oh, it's got lots of kids, lots and lots of kids, and the pools are divided by a very soundproof low rise of bushes, and that's about it. And so you're like, there's kids everywhere at this, all, this only adult resort. What in the world? You know, and so the, the reality is it, it just stings, right? It stings, it, it, it hurts, it, it can leave a wound if it's serious. And like vacation's one thing, but if there's like a, a betrayal from someone, if there's a job that you up and move to only to find out it's, it's not what it sold itself to be, right, that can cause life-changing negative effects, right? That, that can really alter your life. That can cause mental trauma when, when, when there's not authenticity of what someone told you when there's dishonesty from the word that somebody gave you, right? That can really cause some, some pain. But also, if, if we are the ones that are being dishonest, it, it's also affecting our mental state. It's desensitizing us to, to what truth is. You know, it starts with a little white lie, a little like, ah, you know, let me just smudge this just a bit, you know, for, for their own good, of course, right? which then shifts to here, which then shifts to here, which then shifts to here, and now you're like, I don't even know where that was anymore. As we desensitize our own minds to, to what's acceptable or not. But, but then worst of all, perhaps, it's an insult to the glory and image of God. The God who is truth, who is light, of which there's no darkness within. When we say one thing, but then in our hearts are another or live another, when we come on a Sunday and we project one appearance, but then Monday through Saturday, it's a different appearance, it's an insult to the God who is faithfully true, who has no hint of darkness within us. Deception is is always destructive, always destructive to the deceiver, to the deceived, and to the glory of God. And this is Jesus's point in Mark 11 today. In Mark 11, we, we see an interaction with Jesus in a fig tree and then in the temple with with what should be worshipers. And in both cases, Jesus approaches something where he should expect one thing, but in reality, it's another. He approaches something that it should be this way, but in reality, he's misled and he's deceived, and it provokes an anger within Jesus, perhaps the, the peak of his outward anger, because he is passionate for God's glory and for the good of people, and deception always leads to destruction, always. 10 out of 10 times. 
And so Jesus rises up to do something. Now, it's, it's easy, I think, to read this and to, we'll get into it, to read it and to go, okay, the application of this is be good, don't be bad. Tell the truth, don't lie. And, and that's, okay, those are true statements. But one of the things that I've grown in um, just in the last couple of years is why does God tell us to be good, don't be bad, tell the truth, don't lie? Right, is, God, is God's like reputation ultimately dependent on us? Is God gonna like lose a notch of glory in heaven because we dropped the ball? No. God is God, he is glorious, he is holy, whether we ever measure up or not. And praise be to God for that because if he's dependent on me, he's, he's suffering a lot of loss. But God instructs us to tell the truth and not lie because in telling the truth we more reflect his image and we move closer to his presence which is the fullness of life. God instructs us to do good because it's for our good. It's for his glory but the more that we glorify God is for our good. And so that just shifts our perspective of God. God's not just some rule giver and he's like hey do this and don't do that or else. No, he tells us to do something for our good. I tell my kids not to play in the street so they don't get run over by a car. Right, and so when we, we read these passages and it's like, okay, do this. Okay, God's not telling you that just because he needs you to be good. He's telling you that for your good and for his glory. And those two just happen to be two sides of the same coin. His glory is our good. Our good is his glory. So let's read this together. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray with me. God, this is your word, and it is living and active. It is not just for there and then, but it is for here and now. It is for us today. So would you help us by your spirit to understand your meaning, your interpretation, and then, God, would you help us to apply it to our lives, that our lives may be transformed by your word, that our minds would be renewed by your word. Holy Spirit, would you guard and block the distractions that are no doubt in our minds right now? Would you let us hear your voice? Speak truth to us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray and we ask. Amen. So Mark tells us in verse 12 that Jesus and the crew, they get up the next day and they're, they're heading back into Jerusalem, right? It tells us in verse 11 that he entered into Jerusalem, walked into the temple, looked around, then went back out to Bethany. And so now we're at the next day and Jesus is, I'm guessing, he knows he's on his way to the temple. He went there the night before, he saw what he saw, 
goes back to Bethany. He's like, all right, I know where I'm going back the next day. And so they wake up and they are heading into Jerusalem, about a two-mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. I don't like to drive two miles, much less walk two miles. Like, I'm going to get hungry, as does Jesus. And it's hot. You're in the desert. Give me a snack. You know, like I want some food. And so Mark, in typical Mark fashion, gives us all the detail, right? It just says, he was hungry. Like I love, I, I really enjoy the way Mark writes. Like, let's just cut straight to it. He's walking into town, he's hungry, okay? Cool, no more details, we get it. Jesus, they're hungry. And he looks over in the distance, we don't know how far, but he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf. It's really important to understand, it is like, there is the green foliage it is a tree in leaf. Like he can see the leaves from the distance. And so he's like, boom, there's a snack. Let's go, boys. We're going to the fig tree. Says that they approach it to see if they can find anything to eat. When they get there, there's nothing there, for it was not the season of figs. Therefore, he cursed the tree to never produce fruit again. And when I was studying, I, I came to learn that for some people, this is the passage that they claim pushes them away from Jesus altogether. Because they're like, Jesus lost his cool over an innocent tree for not producing figs when it wasn't even fig season. This guy can't be legit. And they legitimately have staked their whole opposition to Jesus on this passage. Not the passage where he gets angry at the people, which we're coming to because they deserved it, but this was just a fig tree. It's an innocent tree. It wasn't fig season. Why would he curse the tree for not producing figs? And so it raises that question for them. And they're like, no, it can't be the case. The tree was, was innocent. In reality, though, the tree is not innocent in this passage. So yes, it was not fig season. Fig season would be late summer, August time, right? When you're going picking those figs. Anybody like figs? Isn't that, what are figs? Aren't they dried plums or something? Am I, what am I thinking of? Why, I heard a what? What are you talking about? Like, it's a date? What? Okay, forget it. I'm tangent. I don't know what a fig is. I don't think we eat them often, do we? Not really. Cool. All right. I don't do the food shopping in our house, obviously. It's like, what is this? I don't know. So fig season, when you expect a ripened fig, is August time. This is March, April. When, when they're moving into Jerusalem, right? And so it's not fig season, but the fact that there are leaves on the tree give evidence that there should be fig buds, known as pagim, P-A-G-G-I-M. The fig buds always come before the leaves, and then the buds continue to grow to be fully ripened in August. So the fact that Jesus sees a tree in full leaf should mean that there are fig buds on the tree. They may not taste as good yet, but they are edible and they are food. So yes, it's not fig season. Jesus isn't going to find ripened figs, but he looks from a distance, sees the leaves, and knows if there's leaves, then there should be fruit on the tree. Not ripened fruit, but fruit nonetheless. Therefore, when he walks up to what appears to be a fruit tree producing fruit and finds no fruit, he's deceived. He's misled into thinking, oh, my hunger is going to be satisfied here. I'm going to find my refuge here. I'm going to find what I'm looking for here only to get there and find that he was sold a false bill of goods. He was deceived. 
the fig tree was not producing what on the outside it showed that it should be producing. Upon closer look, he sees that it's a fraud. It's a fake. It appears to be a fruit tree, but it's not producing fruit. And so Jesus curses the fruit tree to never produce fruit again. Now we can overanalyze this and be like, all right, Jesus, might have been an overreaction. You know, we can, we can try, we can come up with our theory on why we don't trust Jesus because of this fig tree, or we can see that Jesus is trying to make a point. We can remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he just was the night before, and we can connect the two dots that this fig tree is teaching a lesson not so much about trees, but more so about people. That this fig tree is, what, what good is the fruit tree if it doesn't produce fruit? Is it even a, a fruit tree or is it just a tree? Right? What, what good is the fruit tree if it says, I'm a fruit tree, but it doesn't actually produce the fruit of being a fruit tree? In fact, it is probably more harm than good because it's misleading to people that it's a fruit tree, but then when they go out of their way to get to it, they're, they're now more hungry than they were beforehand. And there's no fruit there. So the point of the fig tree is, can you really even call it a fruit tree if it's not producing fruit? And in fact, it's probably doing more harm than good for others by misleading them into thinking that it's a fruit tree. And the point Jesus is making what good is it to call yourself a Christian if we're not producing the fruit of a Christian? And in fact, we're probably doing more harm than good when we like to outwardly show that, that we follow God, but in reality, upon closer inspection, we're not. Which is what happens in the next verses when Jesus gets to the temple in Jerusalem. And they came there and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching, is not this supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers. Jesus comes to the temple where he should find true worshipers of God. He comes into the, the house of God, the, the church building, the temple, where he should find men and women and children truly worshiping God, loving God, truly building up others to know and to love God. This should be the place that if you and I walk in, we start to see, man, what it, who is this God? We start to see a real representation of who God is. We see love among one another. We, we see what it means to build one another up. This is what Jesus should find. This is what he's expecting to find, but instead, he's deceived. He's misled. He's told that this is the place where people who love God gather to worship God, but when he walks in, what he finds is a love of self and a worship of self to the harm of others and to the glory of God. He finds a fruit tree that looks like a fruit tree on the outside, but once you get inside a little bit, you realize there's really no fruit here. It, it, it's deceptive. I would expect to find a love for God and a love for others, but really I'm just finding a love for self. 
That's what Jesus finds inside the temple. I have a, I think, a graphic here. I don't know how well it's going to show up, but sometimes a visual helps with what's going on. So I'm going to come over here. Hopefully you don't feed back. So in the inside here, you've got the Holy of Holies. That's where only the priest could go and make sacrifice on behalf of the sins of people. Out here, you've got a courtyard for men, and here you have a courtyard for women. All, only Jews could enter this section. Now here you've got a wall known as the Sorig, S-O-R-G. And Jews could enter here, and Jews could remain in this presence, or this part, or in here. But from this point back, no, no one who's not a Jew could enter in. In fact, on this wall is written signs that say, if you are not a Jew and you enter in here, you've brought your own death on your own hands. This is in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility that Jesus came to tear down by his death. It's, it's a wall that keeps non-Jews out from, from, the, from getting closer to the presence of God. This is called the court of the Gentiles, and in this area is where you could buy an animal to sacrifice for your sins. So let's back up and get a little bit of the whole Old Testament context. From the very beginning, God created humanity to have a personal relationship with him, to walk in his presence. That's what we see with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. That they were just in communion with God. They were just walking with God in the Garden of Eden. But God is holy, perfect. No sin can be in his presence. It, it diminishes his holiness if sin is in his presence. So from the very beginning, it was understood that if Adam and Eve sins, if humanity sins, they separate themselves from God's presence, from his holiness. We build a dividing wall of hostility between us and God because of our sin. Every sin adds another brick, and another brick, and another brick, and another brick. Anything in thought, word, or deed that is in opposition to God's will. So how do we then have a relationship with God? If you, like me, which Romans tells us, have all sinned and built this wall of, of obstacle between us and God, well, how do we ever have a relationship with God? And so God, in love, decided that for a time, you could sacrifice a pure, spotless animal in the place of yourself, that, that a spotless lamb could die for your sins, could, could suffer for your sins, right? And so God determined that a lamb or a dove or some animal of, of purity could be killed in your place for your sins. And by the death of that animal, my sins or your sins would be forgiven, and then we could have a relationship with God. But that was always meant to be temporary until the lamb of God, Jesus, would come and permanently die for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it's that lamb of God that by his death would tear down the wall of hostility, the wall of sin that separates us from the presence of God. But until Jesus comes and dies on the cross, this is still God's way for our sins to be forgiven, is by the sacrifice of an animal in my place. And so I would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, and I would give my animal to the priest, and the priest would go and make the sacrifice in my place, and God would say, okay, that's, that's fine for now. Your sins are forgiven. 
Now, not everybody had animals. Not everybody was wealthy enough to have a lamb or a goat or chickens or, or whatever. And so in the court of the Gentiles, they would sell animals for the forgiveness of sins. If the only way for my sins to be forgiven was by the sacrifice of an animal, and I don't have an animal, then I can come to the court of the Gentiles, I can buy an animal, and then that animal can be given to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of my sins. It gives a lot of power to the haves and a lot of helpless dependents to the have-nots. Which is fine if inside the church we are loving one another and taking care of one another and not manipulating one another and not extorting one another, but that's ultimately not what began to happen. Over time, the church and religious leaders were like, well, shoot. I mean, the chicken cost me $5, but I could sell it for 10 and they've gotta have this chicken in order for their sins to be forgiven, so they're gonna pay the 10. Five goes to me. And they started making profit for themselves by overselling the animals for the forgiveness of sins. And then they started jacking up an interest rate to, to convert their money into the proper currency of Jerusalem. And so this court of Gentiles where people should come in and start to encounter the love of God among the people of God, the true worship of God, has become a place where it should be a house of prayer, but now it's a den of robbers, where the religious elite are starting to make bank by overcharging people who don't have anything else that they can do, who have to come here to buy the animal for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus walks in, and where he should find true worship, where he should find true love of others, he finds a love of self and a worship of self, and men and women getting rich off the backs of others. He finds the poor unable to purchase a sacrifice, and so they walk away still holding on to their guilt and shame and sin because they couldn't afford to buy an animal for a sacrifice. He finds an insult to the image of God, to the love of God, to the love for the outsider, to the welcoming in of all nations. This should be a house of prayer for all nations, and yet the poor come in and they can't stay because they don't have enough money to buy an animal. The Gentiles are kept out because they're not of the right ethnicity. And Jesus is done with it. And he walks into the court of Gentiles and he sees this happening and he takes the table and he flips it over. There's this anger inside of him. In, in, in another gospel it says he creates a, a whip and he just starts whipping it around. He's just going crazy because of what's happening in here. And for some people they're like, man, Jesus is angry. Guess that's okay for me to be angry. But Jesus is, is angry against sin. He's angry for the glory of God. He's angry for our good. Jesus gets angry because men and women and children are being kept out from the presence of God when, when it should be a place for all to come in. Jesus is angry because this God who is love is being represented as a God who cares more for the rich than the poor. 
that selfishness is what's driving what's happening inside the church, not selflessness. That God isn't center stage, self is center stage. And so what Jesus sees inside the temple is a deception, a manipulation, a misleading that this is where you come to find God, but instead it was an exaltation of self. And so in love for God and love for others, there's an anger that rises up and he steps up to do something about the injustice. Because he can't stand the name of God and the image of God being represented poorly by those who claim to follow God. He can't stand the the darkness that is starting to form in the minds and hearts of those religious leaders. They don't even see it anymore. He can't stand that God's creation is being kept out because of the selfishness of those who happen to have more than them. Look, there's a time and a place for anger. There's a time and a place for you and I to stand up and to speak up and to do something. And it's when that anger is for the glory of God and for the good of another. I think about Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who had a righteous anger and passion within him and couldn't be quiet anymore. He had to step up and do something. But it's because he believed that God created all men and women and children equal and that this segregation was an insult to the name of God. And he believed that standing up and, 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 and walking in the streets and, and, and protesting that that was doing good for his black brothers and sisters and his white brothers and sisters. That it was good for his black brothers and sisters to have freedom and it was good for his white brothers and sisters to not be bigots. And so he stands up and this anger rises up, not in selfish anger, but in, in a passionate, righteous anger for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so there is a time for us to stand up and to let a passionate anger run forward. Look, if you see a brother and sister in sin, it is unloving for you to passively say, like, oh, I just want to keep the peace. No, you step in there and you get in the way of the train that is about to run them over. And ultimately we can't control what other people do, but it is unloving for me to sit by and watch you sin your way into hell, watch you sin your way into destruction. That is not love, that is selfish protection. There's a time and a place to flip a table and to be angry about the injustice that is happening. So this is what Jesus sees in a fig tree, but more so in the temple. He sees a tree on the outside that looks like a fruit tree, but as you get closer, you realize, man, there's no fruit here. It's misleading, it's deceptive. Don't, don't go out of your way to come here. He sees a temple that's built to be a place to worship God to love God, to meet with God. 
Yes, it's not perfect. It's not, it's not the end goal. God has another end in mind, but for the time being, it's a place to come, to have sins forgiven. It's a place of prayer for all nations, but instead it's been turned into a place of extortion and bribery and manipulation. On the outside, it looks beautiful. It looks flashy. It looks like everybody's got it going on, but as you get closer, you realize, man, this is a place of selfish exaltation. It's not a place of love for God or love for others. It's destructive to the deceiver. It's destructive to the deceived. And it's destructive to the glory of God. And Jesus is not going to passively stand by and do nothing. So, so what does that mean for us today? I think the first invitation that God gives us is are you a genuine Christian? Are you genuinely a Christ follower? Or have you learned how to look the part, to, to put on our religious leaves? And from a distance, yeah. But if Jesus were to walk up closer to your life, would he see real spiritual fruit in your life? He tells the disciples, you will know a tree by their fruit. You will know that this is not actually a fruit tree because there's no fruit. You will know a Christian by what is coming out of their lives. Are we the real deal? I got baptized when I was seven. I asked Jesus into my heart. From seven to 15, you would have, I didn't know I wasn't a Christian. You wouldn't have known. I was at every camp, I was at every youth group, man. I was, my hands raised, I was reading my Bible on my own. I was, I mean, I was doing it, and I wanted to, I was doing it all, but it wasn't until I was 15 where I realized that, that none of that actually saves me. I thought it was this prayer I prayed that, that saved me. No, it's Jesus that saves me. That's it. It's not a prayer I pray. It's okay if I misspeak it. It's okay if I got the words wrong. Because Jesus is the one that saves me anyways, and he didn't get anything wrong. So it wasn't until I was 15 that I would say I genuinely trusted Christ. I believed in Jesus, but it wasn't until I was 15 that I trusted in him. I think that's our first question. And the second question is, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, are you the real deal? Are you living a life of authenticity as a Christ follower? A life of honesty? and integrity. First John 1 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's our call if we are Christians is to be people of, of no darkness, of light, of truth. What you see is what you get. My yes is my yes, my no is my no. If Jesus were to come and inspect your life just like he did this fruit tree, just like he did the temple, what's he gonna find with you? Is he gonna find an authentic worship and love of God or is he gonna find a facade and at the heart is a love of self and a worship of self? Now here's the thing. I think it'd be real easy to feel pretty guilty right about now because I'll lead the way. I'm, there's plenty of times where I'm like, oh man, I, know I don't measure up. Like, please, Jesus, don't look now. Come back tomorrow. 
let me clean some stuff up first. Let me get this all figured out. Part of living an authentic Christian life is responding well when we don't live an authentic Christian life. We're going to fall. We're going to stumble. Part of what makes us authentic is that we stand up, we confess and own our mistakes, and we respond well to our mistakes. That there's grace from God, and the invitation is, okay, let's confess that, find healing, and move forward in the right way. And so I think that's, I think those are what we do with this today. Are we truly a Christian? Is there anywhere where our lives are saying one thing but not really matching up to what we say? Not authentically living who we say we are in Christ? And if there is, respond well. We don't have to hold on to it. We don't have to linger. We don't have to put it in a suitcase and carry it around. Respond well, we confess it, we move forward. And Jesus came and he flipped the table. He, he, he brought a disruption to what was happening there. He, he broke down the barrier that kept people out. It says that the chief priests and scribes were terrified because they, they saw people starting to follow him and they, they were fearful of losing their control and losing their power because Jesus had come to make a new way for people to engage and encounter the presence of God. He'd come to tear down the sorig, the dividing wall that kept some out and let some in. He came to be the lamb of God that you and I don't have to pay for. He would pay the price himself. And our sins don't have to be placed on a lamb or a dove or a chicken. Our sins can be placed on Jesus. And he went to the cross so that we don't have to come back year after year or week after week or day after day and hope again that our, our sacrifice will be accepted and our sins forgiven. He went to the cross so that our sins could be paid for once and for all. That when we trust him, God no longer sees our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what frees us up to confess and respond well because it's already been paid for. We're not gonna get an unknown. Is God gonna let us back in? We're already in. We just get to move closer into his presence, into his nearness. We just get more of him. And so Jesus really is the center. And the reason he came to Jerusalem was not just to tear down the, the tables for one day, but was to tear down the way, the wall that kept anyone out. So the invitation for us today is that in Jesus we really can find the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that he brings us. Do we trust him? Will we follow him? Will we know that he invites us into a life of authenticity for our good and the good of others and the glory of God? Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.